Today's message is Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, uh, but we're going to begin reading at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. All right, so uh, today's message falls under four headings. Were, are, will, if. So last week's message was entirely about Christ and that's why I wanted to pull those, that, that first slide of, of Bible reading in today as well. Uh, he's the image of the invisible God. He's the creator and the sustainer of everything. He is above everything. He's the head over the church. Uh, he's the first to receive his permanent resurrection body. Uh, he is supreme. He is preeminent. He is over and above everything else. Right? So last week's message was completely about Christ. And now today, after telling us about the grandeur and supremacy of Christ Jesus, uh, Paul begins with the words, and you. <laughs> How do we compare? It's sort of like really coming down a peg or two or, or a million, isn't it? Like we've just been hearing about the grandeur of Christ and he says, and you. So what about us? What were we like? Well, essentially, we were his enemy. Eh, that's a pretty big contrast. And to some people, this is nothing like the gospel that they've ever heard ever before. So most non-Christians are filled with some level of self-confidence, right? They, they have a confidence in themselves or they have a con and they have a confidence in their loved ones of their own general innate goodness or niceness or unbadness. So, for example, without exception, uh, whenever I've been asked to take a funeral for a non-Christian and when their family are also non-Christians, the family always, thus far without exception, always are at pains to tell me how wonderful the person was. Uh, you see, most non-Christians 
are convinced that basically they're good people and their family, of course, are basically good people. And so, so grandpappy wasn't a mass murderer and, and he didn't always kick the cat whenever he walked in the door and he loved sport. He loved a good joke. He was a hard worker. He loved a beer. He loved his grandkids. They always want to tell me that how, how much he loved his grandkids. And of course, so everybody liked him and their thinking then is, well, why wouldn't God welcome him with open arms? And sometimes people are so intent on telling me this over and over and over again, to me it becomes obvious that actually they're a bit worried here and they're trying to reassure themselves that he's good with God. But, but what a cruel delusion this is to live with that kind of false understanding of self-provided righteousness. And even in many churches today, they'll, they'll preach a version of the gospel which is devoid of any kind of offence. It's a gospel that says God loves you and he's got a wonderful plan and a purpose for your life and all you have to do is add a bit of Jesus to your life and things will be so much better. It's the sort of message that, that really appeals to one's sense of importance because it tells me sometimes that God couldn't live without you, right? God needs you so much. Well, God can't live without me. Of course he can. Of course he can. How full of ourselves are we that we would ever have the notion that God couldn't live without me? No person can be saved until they come to an end of themselves and understand that without Christ, I'm utterly wretched. And every person who is a disciple of Jesus today know that at one time they were completely undeserving. They were completely at odds with Jesus. Verse 21 says, And you, now he's, remember he's writing to Christians here, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... I had a yarn with a bloke a, a few weeks ago and he quite openly shared with me that he was estranged or is estranged from his brother. Now, what does that mean, to be estranged from your brother? It, it means that this relationship that's meant to be close and meant to be really close, like family, well, because you are family, it's supposed to be a really close relationship, but they're estranged. And that means more than, than, than they were strangers. They can't even talk to one another. Now, if it, if, it was, if it was a stranger, you can always get to know a stranger and then you have something to talk about. But it's the opposite of that. They know each other so well, maybe they might be alike so much that they just can't stand each other and they repel each other. And that's what the word alienated means, to be estranged. We were alienated from Christ. We were estranged from Christ. Uh, there was no workable relationship between us whatsoever. And yet many non-Christians today, that they truly believe that God's job is to make their life go well because they're nice people, even though they're estranged from them. Even though they're having nothing to do with God, they still have the expectation that God's job is to make good things happen to me. But there's no relationship. 
So when our youngest son, Ben, was on his way home from a scripture union camp, uh, he lost the water out of his rodeo and cooked it. And it was somewhere over on the range somewhere. I don't know, it was somewhere near Blackbutt or Esk or Kilcoy or... I don't know, somewhere over that way. And he rang RECQ to see what it would cost to, to get a tow. And basically, well, we don't know you. We, we have no relationship with you. RACQ is only for members of RACQ. Uh, but here's the good news. You can join right now over the telephone and we'll send a tow truck straight out to you. Um, now, we, we get that, don't we? We understand this, that RACQ will only come and give you a tow if you're a paid-up member of RACQ. We get that, don't we? And yet, when it comes to God, unbelievers expect that even though they have no relationship with God, um, that God is still there to serve them and to make good things happen to them, even though they are estranged and alienated from God. And not only that, but Paul goes on to say that you were also once hostile in mind. Right? This is about the way that before we became Christians, the way we used to think. It's a conscious antagonism toward God. Uh, this, is, this is how we used to mentally process things and how we used to approach life, our life philosophy, if you like. To be hostile toward God is to shut him out and, and it's to put something else there in his place, usually ourselves. Now, when Paul wrote this letter, he's writing it to a bunch of Christians who used to be pagans. Um, now, what's a pagan? A pagan is someone who, who worships a plethora of gods, or perhaps a more appropriate word might be a pantheon of gods. Um, but when they heard the gospel, they turned away from the multitude of gods. They turned away from the idols that they used to worship, and they then began to worship Christ and Christ alone. And so you can understand how at one time they did used to be hostile in their thinking toward God. They had their own beliefs. And, and that Christian God, oh, he didn't even factor into their thinking. Or if he did factor into their thinking, it wouldn't have been good. They would have been hostile towards him in their thinking because that Christian God, he claims to be the only real God. And to begin to worship Christ, they realised that they would have to turn their backs on all of those gods that they'd grown up with and, and served their entire lives. No wonder they're hostile toward Christ. Um, because our God makes a claim of exclusivity. Our God claims that he is the only one true God. And there's nothing in our society today even that... that gets people's hackles up more than claims of exclusivity. Now, most people in our district are not pagans. Um, maybe a few might be. Um, maybe some do recognise various gods. But most aren't what we would classify as being pagans. Um, but they are so caught up in themselves that they still don't even think about God. And if they do think about God, it's usually in hostile terms. 
And even when we ignore God, this itself is open hostility towards him. Imagine if Robin, my lovely wife here, came home from work and I ignored her. Imagine if she wants to engage in conversation and I turn my back on her and walk over to the television and turn that on. Or imagine if I just decide I'm going to go out and I don't even tell her where I'm going. And I don't even tell her that I am going. I just disappear. Or imagine if I set about and prepare my own meal and I don't cook enough for her and, and don't invite her to eat with me. Or worse still, if she prepared a meal for the two of us and I walked away without sharing it. Now, if you've ever tasted Robin's cooking, that's never going to happen. But, but to ignore someone in that sort of way, that, that's not just ignoring them. This is actually open hostility. It's a practiced ignoring them. And it's not something that just happens. It's something that actually factors into our thinking. Um, I'm going to let you in a little secret. Robin and I have had a few little tiffs in our married life. I, I know you all think that, that the pastor's marriage is perfect and, and, and um, nothing ever goes wrong in that marriage, uh, but we've had a few little tiffs. And to my shame, in times like that, I sort of, how do I let Robin know that I'm, that I'm really not happy? You know? And sometimes I do actually ignore her and it, it actually factors, I actually think about it. I, this is making me sound really bad, um, and I guess that's true. Um, but sometimes I just think, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to ignore her in this way, and she'll, then a message will get through that I'm not happy. It fact, factors into my thinking. To ignore her is actually hostility in my thinking is how it comes about. And in our culture, our very thinking of our culture is hostile toward God. And often, because it's a practice, I'm going to ignore him. But often it'll be hostile in terms of, don't you tell me how I have to live my life. I'll live my life however I like to live it. Thank you very much. And the hostility that begins in our mind invariably spills over into our actions. Verse 21 said, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And by the way, the, the Greek word there that lies, lies behind that word evil, it doesn't just mean bad. It's very properly translated as evil. Um, like, that's really, really, really bad. Evil. But let's get away from the, this rubbish psychological illusion that we're all basically good people and a few bad things have been done to us and because those bad things have been done to us, that explains why I'm not such a nice person anymore. Let's get away from that nonsense. The scriptures are 100% consistent in this. We were evil. We were rotten to the core. We were alienated from God. We were hostile in our thinking toward God, doing evil deeds. And why would we do evil deeds? Because we're evil. But the thing is, 
when a person is evil, they don't realise how evil they are. And we often want to just laugh it off as, oh, it's just having a bit of fun. That's just boys being boys. Or these days you can even say girls being girls. Out here in the bush, one of the common phrases is, ah, young fellas. As if being a young fella covers a multitude of sins. It's okay, you're just a young fella. Uh, Sin is what it's called. Evil is what it's called. Or as Australians, we might say, oh, that's larrikinism. Yeah, just a bit of a larrikin. It's nothing of the kind. Before we were saved, we were so rotten to the core, we might have seen it as being a bit of fun. Why? Because our minds were so disconnected from God. But in God's eyes, we were utterly evil. And for some of us, now looking back over our past lives, stuff that never used to worry us at all, we sort of think, wow, how could I have ever thought that that was okay? Because we now see that actually that was evil. But you might say to me, but hang on, Michael, there's some non-Christians who do really good things, who, who do things that are better even than what a Christian does. And yep, that's true. But they do evil things as well. And so I guess, is it possible for an evil person to do a few good things? Yes, it is. It is. But that doesn't stop them from being evil. And it's only when we begin to understand that we were rotten to the core and how rotten to the core we were that we'll ever understand why we need a saviour. And so you might have come here today not thinking that you're going to fit in, thinking, oh, I'm going to church, that's where all those holy people are, and I'm not really good enough, but I'll, yeah, I guess I'll go along anyway. Um, Let me tell you, you're in good company. Every Christian here knows what we once were. And that's why we never look down our noses at anyone else. Because we needed a saviour to make us right. And this is why we want to share with others that you need a saviour too. Because it's Christ who makes all the difference. Uh, Last week, in a reading we just read just now again, verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Why did Jesus need to die? To reconcile us to himself. Why did we need to be reconciled? Because we were estranged, because we were alienated from him. How do we know that we're alienated and estranged from him? What did that look like? Well, he wasn't central to our thoughts. In fact, our minds were hostile towards him. And our actions, by God's standards, we were evil. But he has reconciled us to himself. How? He made peace between us by the blood of his cross. We were so estranged from God that there was nothing that we could ever do to fix a relationship. God is the only one who could ever do that. Verse 22, 
He has now reconciled, talking about us, talking about we who were evil, in his body of flesh by his death. Right? So in our headings now, we've moved from were to are. We were estranged. Now we are reconciled. And remember, he's talking to Christians here. He's talking to a people who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking to a people who have repented of their sin and surrendered their lives completely to him. When Jesus died for us on the cross, this was to reconcile us to him. And this is a truly amazing thing. We were estranged from him. We were hostile toward him. We were hostile in our very thinking. We didn't live by his commandments. We did evil. We were evil. Essentially, we were godless. But Christ died for the godless. Christ died for those that he was estranged from. Christ died for his enemies. And that's what we were. Wow. That's just amazing that God would do this for those who reject him. It's not because God couldn't live without me. It's because God is a God of grace. It's because God is a God of love. It's because God is a God of mercy. This is who he is. It's because of this that he would reconcile with those who are hostile toward him. We don't deserve it. And that's why we call it grace. At this point, when we think about this sort of stuff, we can't help but want to worship him, can we? we just got to worship him. Praise God. But why would God do that? What was his purpose? So let's move to the next heading, will. In order to present you, right? This is what he will do. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. God's purpose is to present us. We don't present ourselves. He presents us holy and blameless and above reproach. That means that, that no accusation can stand. How could we, who are evil, ever become holy and blameless and, and above reproach before a perfectly holy God? Well, we take on the nature of his son. That's why Jesus was crucified. Jesus was executed to pay the penalty of our sins that we deserved. Have you ever had something that was so filthy that, that it wasn't any good anymore and you just had to throw it away? Now, I could tell you some disgusting stories about hankies that would probably make you want to vomit um, and got a bit of sinusitis happening at the moment so it would be entirely relevant but no, I won't do that. I'll tell you about our deep fryer. After a couple of decades of homemade chips, 
no matter how I try to clean this deep fryer, the way that it's constructed means that you can't get at every part of it to clean it. And it's sort of gotten to the stage where even after you give it a, a really, really good clean and run the bits of it that you can through the dishwasher, it still seems to want to drip goo over the... Melissa's nodding. You've, you've had the same problem, Melissa? Yeah. You don't have a deep fryer anymore. It's, something's a necessity. How you can make chips without a deep fryer? That, I guess chips are cheap as chips, aren't they? You just go and buy them. Yeah. But, um, but it's sort of gotten to the stage now where it really needs to be taken away and th thrown away. I actually took the basket to the shed yesterday and got the die grinder on it with a little, <laughs> with a little wire brush on it. <laughs> You should have seen the goop that I got off of it. But even so, the thing still needs thrown away. But, but the blood of Jesus is so powerful, we don't just get cleaned up a bit. We become a new creation. The old self is put to death and we're born again, new and sinless. And that's how he will present us as holy and blameless and above reproach before him because we become a new creation. Now, this is how the relationship between him and us is restored. He throws the old Michael away. Now, Robin says, how can I do that? Uh, and he creates a new one. That's what it means to be born again. And, and I want to say to you today, if you do not have a born-again relationship with Christ, I urge you to repent of sin and to surrender your life completely to Jesus and he will make you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is how we who were estranged become the children of God. But... What's that then look like for us for the rest of our earthly lives? You see, the thing is, many people will make a commitment to Jesus at the beckon of an evangelist, and this is a good thing, right? An evangelist comes to town, preaches the gospel message, the Holy Spirit does his work in a person's heart, and they turn their lives towards Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. So they've learned how to become a Christian, but they don't yet know how to be a Christian. And I suspect that's why Jesus didn't give the command, go into the world and make converts. He did give the command, go into the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Right? So once I become a Christian, what then? Some folk are of the opinion I've said the sinner's prayer, I've been baptised, she's all good, job's done. But here, Paul tells us how to be a Christian. He tells us how to live as a Christian. Verse 23 is what's known as a conditional sentence. Now, that sounds very complex, doesn't it? A conditional sentence. And some people are very good at not recognising a conditional sentence. But they're not that hard. A dead giveaway is often the word if. If. 
Now, if you happen to be a computer programmer, or if you're skilled with working with spreadsheets, you know very well what the word if means, if you have an if-then statement that you have to make happen, right? So if this is condition is met in, in the spreadsheet, then, then perform this calculation or do this. Does anyone understand what I'm talking about with the if-then? Right. A few of you do. Excellent. Excellent. I knew you would, Phil. I knew you would. And I knew Scott would. Yeah. But, but even if you don't know anything at all about computers, parents understand conditional statements very well. Right? You can go to the party if you clean your room. Right? So it's a guaranteed statement. Right? This is guaranteed. You can go to the party. But it's also conditional if you clean your room. A farmer understands a conditional statement. If it rains, I'll plant the crop. If it doesn't, I won't. We understand conditional statements, don't we? I just wonder, though, why we have so much trouble understanding conditional statements in the scriptures. This is a conditional sentence. Yes, it is guaranteed, but only if. And this is something that, that the people of God seem to have trouble recognising throughout the scriptures. Um, Israel used to have trouble recognising it. God's chosen people, the people of Israel, he made promises to them, promises that were guaranteed, but they had conditional statements attached to them. You will live in the promised land. All of these things will go really well for you if you worship me and worship me alone if you don't go following after those other gods. Right? These are the, are the conditional statements that were made to the God's people, the people of Israel, and they, they would ignore those statements. And they'd just go, yeah, God's made a guaranteed statement. We're going to live in this promised land. It's going to be wonderful. And then they wondered why they got turfed out. Because it was a conditional statement. And it comes to the same thing with the way that with Christians, the people of God today... Salvation in Christ is guaranteed. But it's also a conditional thing. So, for instance, it says, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. There are many, many people in this world who at some stage have made a commitment to Christ, but they didn't follow on and they didn't continue in the faith. And Jesus knew this would happen. He told us the parable of the sower. Some of the crop springs up, but it's in rocky soil and when the sun comes and beats down upon it, the crop shrivels up and dies. And Jesus said that's like people who receive the gospel with great joy, but then persecutions and hardships come along and they fall away. Did they continue in the faith? No, they did not. They fell away and died. They were quite open to following Jesus when there was no cost to it. 
But as soon as they were persecuted for their faith, for being a disciple of Jesus, because they were persecuted, they fell away. And then again, there was, there was a crop that got growing, but then the thorns grew up amongst it and it choked it out and it didn't bear any fruit. And Jesus said, that's like people who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the lures of the riches enter in and chokes the word and they bear no fruit. And you've seen this. We all know people who at some time were walking in faith in Christ, but not anymore. And yes, we are guaranteed to be presented holy and blameless and above reproach if we continue in the faith. What does that look like? Well, there's nothing half-hearted about it. Stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. The condition of being blameless before God is to continue in the faith. Now, in Christian circles, there's a term that sometimes gets used called perseverance of the saints. Do I believe in the perseverance of the saints? Absolutely. We are commanded to persevere. We are commanded to not fall away. And with God's help, we can keep that commandment. Now, as we continue studying this letter, we're going to see that Paul's concern is that they don't get distracted away from the true gospel. His concern is that there's a false gospel that's sort of lurking and, and, and trying to get its way into this church. And that's what this language is hinting at here. He, he talks about being stable and steadfast. He talks about not shifting from the hope of the gospel that they heard. What is the gospel that they'd heard? It had been brought to them by the apostles. Now, the language that he's using here is language about foundations, being stable, and steadfast. We got that camera sitting there on a really good tripod. Why have we got a good tripod instead of that flimsy one we used to have? Because this one is firm. It's a firm foundation for that camera. It doesn't move around excepting when a kid bumps it occasionally, right? Um, it doesn't shift. All right, so this language that's being used here is about foundations. Now, do you remember when Jesus gave us a message about foundations and the foundation of the gospel? He told us the story of the wise man and the foolish man. Wise man built his house upon the rock. We all know that, don't we? So the wise man built his house on the rock. The foolish man built his house on the sand. And the outcome of that story is to be wise is to hear the word of God and to do the word of God. That's the firm foundation. The foolish man heard the word of God but didn't do it. Paul became a servant of the gospel. I'm not sure why our, our Bible reading this morning that... ESV 
um, translated that as minister. So Paul, Paul became a minister of the gospel. Uh, the word is actually doulos, meaning servant, servant. When, when he began this letter, he described himself as an apostle. Now he's describing himself as a servant. As an apostle, his job, his calling from God, was to make the true gospel known. That's why we call it the apostolic gospel. There were many perversions of the gospel around back then. There are still many perversions of the gospel around today. And it's been that way right the way through. But the true gospel is the gospel that Jesus taught. It's the gospel that, that the apostles heard and passed on and confirmed. This is the gospel that we now have recorded in the scriptures. And this is the gospel in which we stand steadfast. This is the hope that we hold on to. Not any other false gospel that, that, that might sound a bit more appealing. Now this is the if. This is the condition. By continuing in the faith, what faith? Being stable and steadfast. Shifting, sorry, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And by being stable and steadfast, that means that we hear it, means that we do it, that means that we live it. And as we continue in faith, we have every confidence, every confidence, no doubt at all, that we will continue to be blameless before God. See, as Christians, we know there's, there's times when we sin or is that just me anybody else find themselves sinning sometimes yeah but by holding on holding firm to the the gospel that the apostles taught we know that when we repent when we turn away from our sin what happens we're forgiven again and again and again. We're forgiven because the blood of Jesus Christ makes us blameless. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, it's a sobering message to, to look back and remember what we once were. We were estranged. We were alienated from you. And yet it was while we had our backs turned to you that you died for us. We praise you that it is by your blood that you reconciled us to yourself. Lord, let us never forget this. And Lord, we remember the conditional if. And Lord, we confess that, that there are times when we have not been stable, when we have not been steadfast, when we have not been never shifting from the hope of the gospel. We have been at times like the foolish man when we've heard your word, but we haven't done it. God, forgive us. And Lord, by your Holy Spirit, help us to continue in the faith, standing firm in the true gospel,
to the glory of God. Amen.